right, let's open our Bibles, if you would please, to 1 John chapter 4. And this evening we are examining the first six verses of this chapter, in which the Apostle John is speaking about the presence and the doctrines of false teachers. Now, I'd like for us to read the text, and then I'm going to make some brief comments about the first three parts of the message. But I want to spend most of our time this evening with verses 4 through 6. So, beginning in verse 1 of 1 John chapter 4, Beloved, believe not every spirit, but try the spirits whether they are of God, because many false prophets are gone out into the world. Hereby know ye the Spirit of God, every spirit that confesseth, that Jesus Christ is come in the flesh is of God. And every spirit that confesseth not that Jesus Christ is come in the flesh is not of God. And this is that spirit of Antichrist, whereof ye have heard that it should come, and even now is it already in the world. Ye are of God, little children, and have overcome them, because greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. They are of the world, therefore speak they of the world, and the world heareth them. We are of God. He that knoweth God heareth us. He that is not of God heareth not us. Hereby know we the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. Recently, I have been reading about the great dearth of Bible teaching in America. There are perhaps more churches in our country now than there's ever been before. Uh, There's more money that's spent on buildings and more money spent on Christian radio and the media today than at any other time. And yet there's great difficulty in just about any area of the country that you want to go, probably all areas of the country, finding someone who preaches still straight from the Bible and teaches the doctrines of the faith. Some of the mainline denominations are struggling to keep men in the ministry, and there are new groups that are arising all the time that are that are really have men and women that want to get into the ministry and they're doing that because of the influence that ministry has and because of the popularity of it and as you're very much aware the money that can be made in ministry certain types of ministry because uh, people know that that they can interest people with certain things playing with the natural instincts that people have towards religion America has become more pluralistic, and with the infusion of many different cultures, there's also come pagan worship practices. And Christian churches have tried to blend, and they are blending some of the teachings of Christianity with those pagan practices in order to open it up to a new audience and try to draw more people in. And so we have uh, in our country a Christianized paganism in many of the churches. I mentioned before that the largest church in the world is located in Seoul, South Korea. And I told you that they have a unique way of uh, growing their church. Members will move into neighborhoods and they'll make friends with people and they'll start to invite them. I mean, they move in these neighborhoods for that specific purpose, just so they can meet new people in order to invite them to church. And using that method, that church has grown to over 800,000 people that are members of that church. But what I haven't told you about that church is that there in Korea, it also has no problem incorporating Buddhism into Christianity. and has no problem uh, mixing the occult in with their worship. They are strong proponents of health, wealth, and prosperity, and of healing, and of miraculous sign gifts. 
Well, at issue is the very scripture that we have here tonight. Is it true that if a church has great numerical growth, is it true that if a church has outreach programs and uh, can help poor people and counsel people that are depressed and deal with marital problems and drug and drugs and alcohol with those kinds of issues? Is it true that if a church can give you a purpose in life and make you really feel good about yourself, is that church a Christian church just because it has the name? Now, surprisingly, all of those things that I've mentioned are, are maybe good qualities in one way or another, but that's not what makes a church a Christian church. Because every one of those good works that I've just mentioned are done, also practiced, by evil spirits, by people that confuse and distort the gospel of Christ. Those very same things are, are done by churches, or by people, I should say, that aren't even Christian organizations. Now, at issue here in 1 John chapter 4 is the ability of Satan to be able to produce a counterfeit Christianity, one that looks good, that wears well, one that's satisfying, but it's really a trap that leads people into hell. Now, the real test of Christianity and that of a real church is not all the peripheral things that churches can do. The real test of it is faithfulness and fidelity to the person of Jesus Christ and to the words that he spoke and that he gave in the Bible. Now, that last part, that last sentence, faithfulness and fidelity to the person of Jesus Christ and what he's spoken in the Bible, that is the grand subject of all of our sermons. I mean, that, that's what we want to teach. We want to expound Scripture, learn, uh, help people to learn about salvation and learn about obeying God, keeping his commandments as a rule of our lives. And that's really all that we're interested in when we come to church here. Now, what Satan tries to do is he is intent on destroying that type of work. And so whatever, whatever way he can, by whatever diversions, by whatever techniques, he perverts the truth. And he, he tries to destroy the work of the church. Now, in, in the first part of this message, uh, three weeks ago, I, I quoted someone who, who said, Error is never benign. And how true that that is, that error is a cancer that always eats away and it will always destroy. Now, we, we talked about that in the first three parts of the message, and we discussed the context of John's teaching. And the context is his current situation. Many false prophets are gone out into the world. And I find it hard to believe that what John had in mind there was just the occasional heretic that wanders into the church and tries to wiggle his way in. I think what he meant that wherever the gospel is preached, that someone is there trying to erect a, an obstacle, trying to put something in the way of God's preachers and of the truth. When Paul wrote to the Thessalonian church, he asked them to pray about that very thing. He said, finally, brethren, pray for us that the word of the Lord may have free course and be glorified even as it is with you, and that we may be delivered from unreasonable and wicked men, for all men have not faith. And so no matter where the gospel is preached, there are obstacles. And when you're preaching the gospel and when you're trying to do something for the Lord, it's like jumping hurdles on an, on an obstacle course. It's always thrown up in your way. And so what Paul is praying here or tells the people to, to pray about is that the gospel would go swiftly and the gospel would clear all of those hurdles. 
and wicked men who stand against the gospel of Christ would be put down, that that would be suppressed, and they would not be able to hinder the progress. Now, the worst of the hurdles, though, that we face is what we would call the helpers, those that we think are ministering spirits, the evil spirits that are actually diverting us from the truth. They're confusing. And the Word of God tells us that if it was possible that they would overthrow even the faith of the elect. And so John here is warning us to watch out for for what Satan is doing, to try every preacher, try every doctrine, everyone that crosses your path. Now the thing about it is, you can't see a spirit. You can't see an evil spirit, so you can't put a meter on it and measure it. You can't put it in an x-ray machine and see it. Can't take it to the airport and run it through security and let it peer through there and see if there's an evil spirit. The way that you tell, I mean, there are evil spirits, and, and they show up in preachers, they show up in doctrines, they show up in attitudes. And so what you have to do is you have to judge that spirit in the only way that's possible, and that's by the Word of God. Now, that brought us to the second point, which was the content of false teaching. It's the MO, it's the modus operandi of a false teacher to obfuscate doctrines concerning the person and the deity of Christ. Now, we have described that as Christology. Uh, Christology is particularly what John has in mind here in these verses. This is why he talks about Christ coming in the flesh. Uh, He's teaching there about the incarnation of Christ because that, at his time, was a doctrine that was constantly under attack. So that that was his immediate concern, but it's by no means the only thing that John wants to tell us. That, that, that's not the only issue. He says many false prophets are gone out into the world. And many false prophets equals many different perverted doctrines. So he's dealing specifically with the un- incarnation. But we notice as we've gone through this that he's also talked about the believer's heart and about regeneration. He talks about love. He talks about doctrines like the second coming the substitutionary atonement. He talks about the requirement of of righteous and holy living for everyone that claims to be a Christian. And undergirding all of that is the foundation of the things that were spoken by Christ, by the apostles, and by the prophets. So in short, his message here is heed the scriptures. Use the scriptures as your infallible guide. And so you look at the contents of a person's teaching. Is that teaching from God? Well, if it is, then it's going to include the fundamental doctrines of the faith and reliance strictly only upon the revealed Word of God. Now, I want to go on tonight to verses 4 and 5, in which John says, Ye are of God, little children, and have overcome them, because greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. They are of the world, therefore speak they of the world, and the world heareth them. Now here John is talking about the character of the hearers. We have here a commendation for the readers of this epistle. They had not been overcome by false teachers. Now they may have been severely tested, and and there was turmoil there, but they were believers. And they hadn't given in to all these seducing lies of false prophets. Now, remember we talked about the controversy of chapter 3, verse number 20, uh, wondering or or considering whether that was a comforting verse or was that a a verse that's a biting challenge to test the reality of their faith. Uh, The third chapter, verse 20 says, For if our heart condemn us, God is greater than our heart and knoweth all things. And so I think that a partial answer to that question, which is it, 
is here in verse number 4. And that is that John didn't doubt their faith. In fact, he encourages them, but he doesn't doubt them. He says, you are of God, little children, and have overcome them. And so they haven't fallen beneath that constant barrage of false teachings. And John did not tell them, you better double check to see if you actually know Christ. So here he's speaking to people that need some fine-tuning. They do need some encouragement, but they must have had evidence of their faith because he said, ye are of God. And we already know that it's not John's way of, of speaking. It's not the way he operates to say that you are of God unless you've met these previous tests that he's given. Doctrinal tests, a morality test, and a test of love. And those are rigorous tests that can only be met by a Christian. And so he's not going to say, ye are of God, unless the evidence of those three particular things are in that person's life. So what does he mean when he says, you have overcome them? We know he's not speaking of a physical battle. God doesn't ask us to fight physical battles with guns and knives. You might defend your family that way, and that's all right. But God does not have to be defended in a physical way. Paul says in 2 Corinthians, For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war after the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds. So here, they had won the battle. They had the victory. That was achieved. And they had a victory in spiritual battle, but they also had won in the, in, uh, an intellectual battle that they'd won. See, false prophets had tried to deceive them, but they weren't able to do that. They weren't deceived. Now, I want to take just a moment to look at that. And first it would be, I want to talk to you about the power of the opposition. They had won an intellectual battle. How did these Christians that are mostly servants in households, they are slaves, most of them have very little formal education, how did they win an intellectual battle? I mean, really, most of them are not intellectually superior to the false teachers. And if you've been with us in our study, you know that these false teachers are the Gnostics. These are people that were doing what I talked about concerning the world's largest church. They had mixed pagan human philosophy with Christianity. Now, that's an oil and water mix. It doesn't work, but that's what they were trying to do. And the truth of it is there are few people that were able to stand up intellectually to these Gnostics, not, not on an intellectual level. Paul could do that. He, he argued freely with Greek philosophers, and he brought their wisdom crashing to the ground. He even quoted from their philosophers, and, and, he, and, he, and he showed them that God's foolishness, reverently speaking, is, is wiser than the Greeks' wisdom. But these people here are not orators. These are not logicians like the Apostle Paul. So how do they overcome false prophets? And don't think that's a snap either. Notice the way that John says this. Greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. Now, we don't want to pass too quickly over that statement. It at least implies that there's something great about the opposition. They're great, but the one that's in them is greater. So we need to understand that, that the opposition is great, and the opposition is impossible for us to overcome in our own strength. Last Sunday night in our Revelation study, we saw how the devil is going to deceive the entire world after 1,000 years of the perfect reign of righteousness of Jesus Christ. That tells you something about how great he is, how, how powerful the opposition is. And when you're talking about false teachers, they have satanic power that's behind them. 
And so they're, they're able to confuse people, and, and people are dazed when they listen to them. And then I think about, I was thinking about this the other day. There, there are many people that are just really impressed with a preacher's title. If he has doctor in front of his name, or if he has a list of letters after it, then there's instant credibility. But some of the most prominent doctors are also the world's greatest heretics. I mean, they, they're... they're their credentials are a springboard to confusion. And so they're liberal seminaries that turn out hundreds of doctors every year. But you know what they've been trained in? They've been trained in denying the infallibility of Scripture. Many of them do not believe in the full humanity and deity of Christ. Most of them have no real clue about what salvation in Christ is all about because they don't even possess, possess it themselves. So we ought not to be impressed by credentials. Don't ever be afraid to challenge people like that because every doctrine and and every preacher has to be tried on the merits of God's Word. So you don't assume that anybody's right because they have the title, because they have doctor, because it's pastor, because it's reverend, or anything else. The devil is great. And we learned in our first lesson that deceivers are better at deceiving than disciples are at discerning. That's true. The devil is powerful. He's great. So we notice there the word great, that's a part of word greater. The opposition is great, but John still says, greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. Now, how, how then do, do we overcome that intellectual battle? Well, I want you to see, next, to see next the panoply of God. How do the intellectually inferior tackle these great minds that believe they have superior knowledge of God. And that's the way the Gnostics were. They believed that they were extraordinary. They they were gifted. They had superior intellect, superior understanding of God. They actually thought that they lived on a higher spiritual plane than was even possible for the average Christian to live. So how do these Christians overcome that? Well, John says, greater is he that is in you. Now, I love that word panoply. That's a transliteration of the Greek word panoplia that we find in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 11. We use that word. We sing that word when we sing the song, Soldiers of Christ Arise. And I think we sang that last week. And, And there's a verse there. It says, And take to arm you for the fight the panoply of God. That comes from Ephesians 6, 11, which says, Put on the whole armor of God that ye may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. Armor is panoplia, the panoply of God. And that's the key to overcoming this intellectual and this spiritual battle. So Ephesians chapter 6, verse 14, Paul says, Stand therefore, having your loins girt about with truth, and having on the breastplate of righteousness. And he goes on and he says, And your feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. Above all, taking the shield of faith, wherewith ye shall be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit, and watching thereunto with all perseverance and supplication for all saints. So how do we put on that armor? How how do we get all of this that he describes? How, How do we overcome? And that's done through the illumination of the Holy Spirit in conjunction with the truth of God's Word. 
That is the only way that you're ever going to be able to fight false doctrine. It has to be through the truth. You, 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 you fight the false with the truth, and truth is found in Scripture. And the truth is always the objective standard. And so anyone that strays away from that and says, well, I have a revelation. I have a word of God. This is not, this is not me talking. This is God speaking. You know they're a false prophet. Because the way that God speaks is always through his word. That's the way he speaks. That's the objective standard of truth. Now we go on from here, and uh, verse number 5 helps us to understand the popularity of the opposition. Verse 5 says, They are of the world, therefore speak they of the world, and the world heareth them. Now before we get into that, I just want you to notice something here. This is one of those places in the Bible where we see that the word world is used in different ways. And we talked about that when we studied chapter 2, verse number 2. There John said, and he is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. And world in that verse means Gentile peoples as opposed to those that are Jews. And then in chapter 4, verse number 1, there's another meaning for the word world. He says, Beloved, believe not every spirit, but try the spirits whether they are of God, because many false prophets are gone out into the world. And there, the word world means the earth, means the physical place that's inhabited by people. And we have yet another meaning here in verse number 5. They are of the world, therefore speak they of the world, and the world heareth them. Now there, the word world means everybody that's hostile to God. And that would mean both Jews and Gentiles that are unbelievers. So you have to be careful whenever you see that word world that you interpret it rightly by what the writer has in mind. Now sometimes we can get very discouraged because we can't get the same crowds as the false prophet. Now again, I mentioned the world's largest church. Uh, They have a methodology. They have a way for reaching all of these people. Now we wonder then, why is it that they can get 800,000 people and we can't get 800? Well, the answer is in verse number 5. They are of the world. They're speaking the world's language. In other words, they're speaking the message that the world likes to hear. See, people are naturally religious and there's nothing that they like better than to find a preacher who tells them what they want to hear. Paul called that people with itching ears. And he meant people that like to have their ears tickled. They don't want anybody to offend them. They don't want a preacher to uh, give them the hard sayings. They don't want to be uncomfortable when they go to church. And so you just give people what they want. You give people what the corrupt heart wants, and you can get a crowd. And what is it that people want most of all? Well, they want a religion that exalts them. When religion really talks more about them than it does about God. I mean, nobody wants to hear a doctrine that grinds you into the dust of the earth. Nobody wants to hear a doctrine that tells you that you're a sinner and tells you that you are depraved. People don't like that. What they desire is teaching that's foremost about self. How can we elevate ourselves to the level of God? And if you can do that, they're satisfied. And it started out that way in the Garden of Eden. Adam thought that there was something better for self. So he ate of the tree. And then after he did that, he realized the mistake that he made, and he tried to make up for it. And you know how he did it? By trying to put himself back up on God's plane again. He thought that the way to correct that was to do his own work. Make fig leaves, cover up my nakedness, and I'll be right back up there where God wants me to be. 
Well, what you see there is the basis of all works religion. And this is what all works religion has at its heart and core. It is self. It's self and not God. Well, we ask a question. Are people really self-centered? That's really a dumb question, isn't it? I mean, we've always been self-centered. But the difference between then and now, whenever then was, was that at least we used to hide it a little bit. You know, if you're self-centered, you didn't want people to think that you were. You, you tried to hide that. Well, but now we're living in a self-centered generation, and now self is a virtue. Think about it. I mean, why do people tweet everything they're doing? Why do they go on Facebook and they tell you what they're doing every waking hour? Here's what I did five minutes ago, and here's what I'm doing now. This is what I'm going to do in five minutes from now. And so here's where I was, here's where I am, there's where I'm going. What is that? That's making me the center. That's, the, that's an exaggerated opinion of self. That's making me the center of the universe. Now, you take people that are me-centered, and what do you think their religion's going to be like? What is it that they want? Well, we have all these people out here in the me-centered generation, so what they would like to hear, they want to hear about self. Joel Osteen has 43,000 people every Sunday listening to messages about what? Self-esteem, self-worth. God wants you to have it all. God wants you to have this, and God wants you to have that. Now, why is that so popular? Well, it's very simple. John says here, they're speaking the world's message. They have what the world wants to hear. Now, Robert Schuller found that out a long time before Joel Osteen. Remember, he's, he's the one who says that classic theology erred by making uh, theology uh, God-centered rather than man-centered. And so, Schuller had, had become the center of his own tweet before anybody ever started chirping. I mean, he, he had it all right there. So it's a me-first philosophy, a crowd-pleasing philosophy. And folks, those types of ministries are the fastest-growing in the so-called Christian world. People come to hear it because those guys are of the world. They speak the same language, same objectives, and so it becomes popular. Now, if you want to bring that back around uh, to where to God and where it should be, then the message becomes wildly unpopular. It gets resisted, and the closer and closer that you get to what God actually said, what the Word actually says, then the more it's resisted. When you start reducing it to the Bible alone and leave out all of this infusion of man's philosophy, if you keep taking it back to what Jesus and the apostles said, the opposition gets bigger and bigger. People don't want it. And even in our churches that we think, well, it should be teaching the truth, and, and we think that they're all right, they, they still need something left. They need something left for them, even if it's just the decision. At least let me make the decision between heaven and hell. Give me that much at least. But God doesn't want you to have even that much because he knows anything that you have, you're going to mess it up. You have any part of it, then you're going to stay lost and you're going to go to hell. And number two on that is you can't get close to the center of this. And that's because it's all about him. It's all about his glory. And that's the part that people don't want. They become strongly resistant to that. Can't just a little bit of the universe be about me? Well, it's only about you insofar as it's about him because he created you to glorify him. And if you want to fit in some other way, then what you have to do, at least to some degree, you've got to get a preacher who's of the world. 
at least to some degree. If you want a piece, whatever little piece you have, then you've got to get a preacher that gives you something from the world. Now, verse number 6, then, is the contrast to all of that. And this is the confidence in the apostles. With all of the false teachers that are running around all over the world, we need to have some confidence that somebody's telling us the truth. Somebody's got to be telling the truth. Well, what does John say? We are of God. He that knoweth God heareth us. He that is not of God heareth not us. Hereby know we the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. We are of God. Well, who is of God? He's speaking of the apostles. Now, folks, I would never have the audacity to say, I am of the truth, and you listen to me, and if you listen to me, that proves that you're a Christian. I would never claim that kind of exclusivity. But John does. He includes himself in this small group of men called the apostles, and he says, we are the authority. We are of God. And then in addition to that, he says, if a person really knows God, he'll hear us. And if he doesn't hear us, then he's not of God. And he means, if he doesn't believe us, if he doesn't follow us, then it's proof they're not of God. That's exclusive. And what that's doing is nailing it down so that anything that falls to the left or to the right of that path that's being walked by those apostles and what they said, anything that deviates from it at all is not of God. And you know something about it? Those who are true believers don't argue with that. We don't argue with that. We accept that as being true. They told us the truth and we believe it. Now, why do we recognize that? Why do we recognize truth? Well, there's only one reason. The Holy Spirit leads us in that direction. It's the only way we'll ever recognize truth. The Holy Spirit leads us there. And so that's how they overcame. That, that's how they believe the message that John and the apostles preach because that's where the Holy Spirit always directs. He doesn't lead anywhere else. And let me state that to you in another way. The reason that the Holy Spirit leads in only one direction, and that's it, because those words that were spoken by the apostles and that were penned and put into the Scriptures are words that the Holy Spirit gave them. So they were inspired by God's Holy Spirit. So where do you think the Holy Spirit's going to lead people? Right back to the inspired word. I mean, if you believe at all in the inspiration of God, then you have to believe the place that God's going to take you is to his word. And so if a person doesn't listen to the word, if he wants something else, then that's proof he's not of God. And the person who leads you there is a false prophet. Now, you see the step-by-step logical progression here. Now, one of the things you do when you read John... And I'll get into this, I I think, maybe in the next message, the one after. When when you're reading John, you don't follow John like you do the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul is step, 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 step. This follows this, follows this, follows this, and that's the way it is. You get there, there's the grand conclusion, and you've got all the steps that follow up to that. John's not usually like that. But what we, uh, and I'll I'll make this point later on, he likes to go in the back door, not the front door. So here, here's, here's, but he does, he has a very logical progression in this because he starts out this way, wrong content, false prophet. Those who follow them, wrong character, listening to the world rather than God. Who already have confidence in? The apostles and the words that they taught. And if we have confidence in that and we believe that, what does it mean? You are children of God. Ye are of God, little children, and have overcome the world. Now let me wrap it all up these four messages with this last statement, and it kind of takes all of this in. A true prophet submits to the Bible. He doesn't make any excuses. He doesn't say, I have another revelation. I have another book. 
I have some other view of Christ that works better. I have a system that you will like better. I can make you the center of everything instead of God, so just follow me. And when you hear it, then you know you have the teaching of a false prophet. So John concludes by saying, Hereby know we the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word and what we learn here. And and Lord, you're helping us to discern between the true and the false and how we can determine that we really are the children of God and, and whether what we're hearing is what we ought to believe. We thank you for your Holy Spirit that opens our eyes to truth and leads us in ways of righteousness. So, Lord, we do pray that you would bless our people, and and we thank you, Lord, that we're able to open up your word freely tonight and preach from it and then have your people gladly receive it. Bless our people, Lord. We thank you for each and every one. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.